Well, Patty, I was really excited to have Jeff uh, on today to really talk about career in payments. We don't talk about that very much in the podcast, you know? No, we don't. And, and it's really important. You know, a lot of people listening, I'm sure, are new to the business. Some of them are old. It's old hat. But, you know, you really need to look at this as, as a career. And there's some real opportunities out there that some people may be not, not recognizing. And right, and I, then I, I, I really followed that up in the questions in the field and just talk even more about, you know, number one, should you consider being more involved with your processing company? If you're maybe you're an independent agent or a, a sub ISO owner, should you consider actually like trying to join the executive team, trying to really be part of the company as a strategy to make more money and make a bigger impact? Um, and if so, how do you do that? What are the steps? And so that that's what, really what I cover in, in the questions from the field. Um, and then talk about the insiders report today, Patty. Uh, you know, we, uh, we the industry dodged a bullet, so to speak, in Texas. And I talk about a new law there that... Uh, I think a lot of people who might have been working there would be happy, who are working there will be happy to know yes. it's been codified. So, yes. Uh, and uh, our, our episode today is uh, sponsored by NMI. For more information, you can go to ccsalespro.com slash NMI. So what do you say we get going, James? Let's start our interview with Jeff. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, Patty and I are here today with Jeff Underwood. Jeff is the Assistant Vice President of Sales and Business Development at EPSG. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing fantastic, James. Thanks for having me. Great Absolutely. to see you, my friend. You as well, well Patty. We're really excited to have this conversation today, Jeff. Um, you know, we haven't talked a lot on this podcast about, you know, the larger concept of having a career in the payment space. And one thing that I've noticed as a trend as I'm talking to um, salespeople in the industry, even ISO owners, um, there's a misconception that the, you know, the way to make money in the business is always, you know, you go 1099 and then you register your ISO and then you build this team. And then, you know, it's kind of this path. And for, as a consultant, you know, I work with a broad spectrum in the payments industry and I see all of these other people that are very successful uh, financially and otherwise. And I just want to talk today about that path. And so we're really interested to dive in before we dive into the real specifics though, tell everybody your story. You've got such an interesting story in the payment space. Tell us how you kind of got to where you're at right now. Yeah, it's a great question and uh, appreciate the opportunity just to share that a little bit. You know, it's uh, I would say maybe I'm a little newbie into the payment space, five, six years in the payment space. Prior to that, growing up in the retail environment, right? It was customer service focused, uh, going every Saturday to work with my dad and got into sales in my early 20s and kind of bounced around into some opportunities. And then most listeners won't know I was in law enforcement. I was a deputy sheriff. Um, wow. And awesome. you have the, you have the physique for it though, Jeff. You, know, you, <laughs> kind of, you kind of look, have that look. <laughs> yeah. My friends call me the big guy, you know, it's uh, yeah, exactly. like, man, as soon as they meet me in person, I'm like, we didn't think you were that big. Uh, <laughs> but uh, long story short, you know, uh, unfortunately I got hurt in that industry and took some time off. Uh, you know, some of the time off wasn't by choice. Uh, but interesting enough, I didn't know much about this LinkedIn thing and got on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, I, one of my main connections, the credit card space kind of fell in my lap. So it wasn't something I searched for. It right. just happened organically. And next thing you know, I'm in the payment space and uh, doing everything I could very quickly early on. People said, you're not going to understand this space for a year or two. And I'm like, no, I'm going to figure this thing out in three to six months. And yeah. so it just, uh, it's just something that attracted me and... I'm here yeah. for the long haul now. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, so I'm really excited to dive in. So let's let's start at the beginning. It's always a good place to start. So, sure. you came into the industry as a, a W-2 employee. 
Um, talk about the very initial experience that you had and also, you know, knowing what you know now, if you were coming into the industry again, fresh, right, with the knowledge yeah. you have now, would you have done anything different? Would you have started in any, any different way or, do, or are you happy with kind of the foundation you got at the first company you worked with? So talk us through that initial phase a little bit, if you would. Sure. You know, the, the initial phase is, you know, the term drinking from the fire hose, right? Uh, so many things coming at you. Don't even understand credit card processing, how it works, um, you know, and so getting into it, I think the biggest impact for me was the individual that hired me um, was his name is Chris Berry. And he was instrumental in my success early on in my career in a W-2 environment. And you asked the question, would I do anything different at the time? I mean, knowing what I know now, maybe I would have done more research, but I think the key to this whole thing is relationships matter. Right. And that relationship that I, you know, uh, rather quickly with Chris helped me build my payments, you know, foundation. And so I think that was absolutely pivotal. So from that standpoint, I wouldn't change anything because I had a really, really good foundation of some of the, the you know, the early on skills that are needed in this space. I really learned from him. And so for that, I wouldn't change that because it wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for that first move. And so I really got my feet wet and was able to build a foundation there. So, so this is really interesting. So, I mean, it sounds okay. You built a foundation. I'm assuming you kind of started rising through the ranks fairly quickly, right? Um, and so I'm wondering what you attribute that to, you know, what tips you might have for our listeners who might find themselves working at a medium to large processing company and they want to grow their careers. What, yeah. you know, what, what, what did you do that made that possible for you? Sure. Um, it's a great question, Patty. I think part of it is just who I was prior to the, the payment space, right? We all get a choice of what we get to do every single day. And it's what we make of that. And so, you know, that statement, hey, it's going to take you a year or two to learn this space. I took that as a challenge. And so for me, I dove in 60, 80 hours a week, researching, understand what the company's platform is, the process, learning interchange, right? Oh, you're not going to mm -hmm. be able to read a statement, understand what all those things mean for a long time. I was hell bent on learning that stuff in 30 days. So it was just the attitude of you can own your own business. It's what you make of it. And I think some people think it just comes. Right. I just chose to work maybe a little bit harder and longer than some others might not do. And mm -hmm. so I took it as a challenge. And that's what I just dove head first, Patty. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what really set up my foundation of diving in getting mm -hmm. up at 4 a.m., studying right. when everyone else was asleep, then go activity, and then at night, recap. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. I think it's so important. I think uh, you, you just can't overemphasize putting in the effort. Um, it's the one thing that all of our listeners can do, um, right? It doesn't okay. It doesn't matter what your, you know, uh, level of intellect or whatever, you know, the, the work is always going to be the multiplier that you can use. Um, to right, multiply absolutely. the effectiveness. And so I think that's crucial. And I think also your, I think it, it, one of the words that came to my mind when you were saying that, Jeff, was the word curiosity, right? Isn't that something you see like with successful people? You know, I remember when, you know, when I had a, the last time I had a W-2 job um, where, you know, everybody, it's kind of like, oh, you're going to go work at this company. It was True Green Lawn Care, which was kind of the stereotypical, okay. like, Oh, uh, dead end sales, sales job, job, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'll tell you what, I made a lot of money there. And uh, and the way I made a lot of money there was just like you, 
getting early, staying late, studying, 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 you know, reading all these extra books, trying to figure things out and just putting that work in. And what you find is, you know, these companies that have a lot of resources, it turns out they're willing to invest some resources in somebody that's going to give them more resources. Sure. Right. Right. And going to help them out. So, so you're with that company, your first company, you start to grow through the ranks. Um, would you mind giving us a little more context before I get to the next question of like, what were you doing at your first company um, kind of towards the end? Like where, where did you end up? What was your job responsibilities like there? Yeah. So at the end, you know, I started as a relationship manager, then a territory, and then I was a division manager at the time when I left. Okay. Um, so building a team in Northern California, okay. kind of in our Central Valley area, and um, not just growing the team from a headcount perspective, but, you know, developing and training them to be future leaders of the company. Right. Um, and so that was my day-to-day operations. It was from a recruiting standpoint, getting out in the field, you know, not in a sales role anymore. Uh, but just using those those tools that I had to help develop others to go out there and be successful. Um, and that was day in, day out. That's what I did. Okay. So then at some point you realize it's time to make a move, time to make a transition. Um, yes. It's always scary from a career perspective because like, okay, right. I, I already know all these people here. I've got this kind of capital built up in terms of just my relationships. Um, yeah. And then you decide, hey, it's time to make a move. Walk us through that decision. I know that's that's one that a lot of people in this industry, especially because there are so many opportunities, mergers and acquisitions are happening and people yeah. are like, okay, maybe I should move. I think there's a better offer here, but they're maybe scared to take the leap. Others maybe take the leap too early and they miss. So talk about that decision for you. What was involved and what did you do to make that transition? Yeah, another great question. You know, when, when I was making that, once I identified a few months prior to my departure, um, I realized I'm a big believer. You got to lay your head on your pillow every night and know right. you did right. Right. Yeah. And there was just some things that were just becoming for me personally. It doesn't, you know, anybody else, but it, there was just a, an alignment misalignment. And I almost left the industry. I was like, you know what? I, I've been doing this now three plus years. I think I'm going to uh, get out of the industry because right. you see a lot of stuff in this industry, right? Yep. Not always the right thing. Not, and not so nice leader, stuff too. Yeah. 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 A leader told me, he said, Jeff, I want to make sure you're running towards something and not away from something. Yeah. And that very statement, like it caused me to pause. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, you know, I'm really good at what I do. And I know this industry and there's good in this industry. Mm-hmm. So I could leave it. But then I'm always going to question, I wonder if I stayed, what would that look like? Right. And so that was a pivotal moment for me. Um, you know, I think it might have been a question to keep me where I was at but it made me grow further into my career. Let me research some different companies. And then I made a choice and I moved. Yeah. And and when you made that move, talk about, you know, how do you make that move? And, you know, you don't start from scratch, obviously. You want to pick up right where you left off, if not grow, right, into this new position. So talk about how you did that. What are some of the things that you took from your, your early experiences that you were able to duplicate that success at your next role? How did you kind of make that transition successful? Yeah. Another good question. You know, I love you use the word duplication, right? I always say one plus one equals two, right? Right. No matter how you slice or dice, it's always going to equal two. So how do you duplicate what you've already done? So one, knowing the industry, but also it's the relationship piece, right? Mm -hmm. So I was able to easily come into a new organization, learn the back end. Before I brought anybody on, I wanted to go through the whole entire process, right deals, right application, what's onboarding experience like, what's the support structure like. Now I can use those relationships and, you know, through the industry to continue to add and build onto the team 
in a much larger territory. So my territory was Northern California, pretty much had Western United States. So taking what I knew, mm-hmm. here's some additional things that now are resources. Maybe not everything's white labeled. That's why I started learning more about integrations instead of just, hey, here's the boilerplate, fill in the blanks, let's go. Right. Now there was some new things that I was learning along the way. So so if you don't mind, talk about a little bit about some of the things you learned at the first company, you know, on your early experiences. You know, what did you take away from that that made the transition to the new company? You know, some maybe some I know you kind of alluded to it, but maybe, you know, just give us a couple of examples of how that helped you build your team um, as you made this transition. Yeah, it's uh, I think the biggest thing is structure. Okay. Right. It's like I learned the structure of the payment space, what it takes from get someone from point A to point B. There can be a lot of stuff in the middle, but I think it was a foundational standpoint for me. The curiosity questions. Right. I'm curious. It's not mm-hmm. just running in there and be the race to zero. Right. So there's a lot of those fundamental steps of, of, you know, appointment setting, setting right expectations. So I was able to take the foundation, which I'm so thankful for. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I'm grateful for that foundation, but I didn't want to just stay stuck there. I wanted to keep growing and learn more and do more and not just stay, Hey, this is my role and I'm going to stay inside this box forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say the structure Patty um, is something I really took, uh, you know, with me from a training standpoint, how to, you know, how how to help someone get where they are today and move. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, I mean, that's really important because, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, I don't like what's going on here, so I'm going to go start something that's totally different. And then they fall flat on their face because they really don't have any experience with anything that's totally different, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, there was a lot of things in my second company I went to that were very similar to the first. Mm-hmm. It just was an expansion of what I've learned, and there was a little more pathways opened up. So it was this natural progression, and then kind of where I'm at today, it's, you know, a lot of those principles apply, but it's a way different ballgame now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. So let's talk about EPSG a little bit. Um, so you end up, you know, you go to your second company, you come over to EPSG, um, you know, our audience, for those that don't really know anything about EPSG, tell us a little bit about it. You know, what was it yeah. about that company that really attracted you to say, Hey, let's, let's make this, you know, move here to EPSG. What was it about the company that made you want to jump on board? Yeah. I talked to quite a few companies and, you know, the one thing that stuck out to me about EPSG was the people, um, you know, and I had this, you know, starting my own, say, ISO, right? Where can I find a group to start my own company, run it the way I want and have true ownership, right? Like yeah. there, there's a residual piece of our income and there's stuff that, yes, you, you, you still have, but you don't maybe truly own it. So that was a really attractive to me. Yeah. Um, and what was really neat is, uh, when I first got into talks with EPSG, this was three years prior that they were reaching out. Hey, come take a look at us. Come take a look at us. Right. The consistency from a recruiting standpoint was great, but it was really the people, the EPSG, the first company, not first company, but out of the multitude I was speaking with, the senior vice president of the company flew out just to meet with me. And that spoke volumes to me. I'm not just a number. I'm not someone on a LinkedIn page, but they saw something they were willing to come out and have a conversation face to face, you know, um, that was the first indicator to me. Like I got something special here. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to, I want to unpack a couple things that you just said, because I think they're, they're so crucial. Um, 
you know, when you talk about your experience of coming to EPSG and you talk about ownership, you know, um, I really think a lot of people in our audience might scratch their heads a little bit and say, wait a second, I thought you were the assistant VP of sales and business development. I thought you're an employee of the company. Yeah. Right. And so talk a little bit about, you know, without obviously yeah. no specifics here, but give us some idea of the complexity of compensation in this industry from an opportunity perspective. In other words, you know, the fact that you can play a role at a company like what you're doing, where you're actually involved in the executive team, but yet you have some ownership and you have some opportunities to make serious, you know, financial success happen. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you look for? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the intention of me taking this role, there was never the intent, right? It was just never the part of the plan. My plan was, hey, build my thing, Right. You know, you're treated as a partner. You're not, it, it's right. like they, they truly understand that partnership piece right. to it. But the, oh, the the one thing that struck out to me is their mission is the partner is their priority. It's not the in merchant, you, it's not the merchant. Right. It's mm-hmm. the partner piece to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So as things evolve in that relationship, so I, I still have that ownership piece, but to help grow the organization to go impact others like me right? That, that might want to have that ownership piece. So, you know, from a comp plans perspective, yes, there's still some ownership piece, but there's also, you know, a, a great amount for someone like myself, right? That it might be searching um, to truly um, like start to understand that, hey, this can be yours. It's not just the, the company signing an agreement with a merchant, it's you and the merchant now agreeing to, to have true ownership. Um, and that was pretty eye-opening for me. So it was an easy decision for me to make. Right. Um, so uh, hopefully that answers your question. It, it does. Um, it does. And I think, and I think speaking to that even a little bit more to, to me, when I think about, you know, if I think about my list of people I know in the industry with the highest net worth, the highest income, you know, this idea that all of those people are independent or that they're all owners of their own totally independent branded ISO is insane. Like 80% of the people on that list that have the highest net worth, they are directly, in many cases, W-2 associated with a processing company. And so they're involved in that and they have their own kind of piece of it. And maybe they're even getting some kind of a salary or some, you know, other compensation, but they're, they're involved day to day in it. And so I think one of the key points I really wanted to get across in this conversation is, you know, and it's funny because Jeff, like for you, the way you've been in the industry, this just sounds like the most obvious thing, but to a lot of those in our audience, this idea that, you know, Hey, if you really like the processing company that you're working with, and you you know have the background and the skill set of leadership and management and these other things, you know it's worth talking to them about maybe expanding this relationship. Like you maybe could work at their corporate office or maybe even you're remote, but you're actually more a part of it. And what happens is now instead of you all on your own as a lone wolf leveraging the scarce resources that you have, all of a sudden you have a processing company with you know tens of millions of dollars in capital backing you up that's saying, hey, we want to help. What can we do? And all of a sudden you have that relationship working together. And so I guess my real question, Jeff, is this, you know, when you looked at coming to EPSG as, okay, I can own my own kind of sub ISO, right? Versus I can be part of the the company itself, you know, from a financial perspective, it's like, you know, that sounds like that was a pretty easy decision for you when you realized, hey, I could be actually part of the company and leverage their resources. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well of just kind of like why you chose to go with the company itself rather than just totally on your own as a, a sub ISO. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a uh, back and forth, right? Like in yeah. my mind, I'm like, hey, I can keep <laughs> going down this, this 
this route and right. build something great. Um, again, it goes back to the people. And, you know, I think sometimes we're a creature of habit, right? Like yeah. I have this just desire to continue to help others build right. their wealth. Right. And so it was really, you know, for me, it's kind of fighting this, this part of me that says, nope, I'm going to go out and do the lone wolf. I'm going to build something there, but also the attraction of being a part of even helping build the brand even bigger than what it is today. Yeah. And so that became an easy decision for me. Right. And everyone's different. And that's yeah. what's, that's, what's awesome about this industry. Yeah, sure. You, yeah, we, you can love it where you're at, right. Right. And where you want to go and you can design it however you want. Yeah. Um, it's one of so that's career beautiful. paths that you can actually create for yourself as yeah. opposed to having to rely on somebody else. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I love it. I love it. I think this is such an interesting conversation for our listeners because I'm my my hope is that number one, there's going to be a lot of people listening in our audience who are the W two employees that, frankly, maybe don't get as much out of our podcast uh, as others. And hopefully today they're going to say, okay, wow, this is cool. Like I'm motivated. I I want to grow. I want to do something right. And I'm hoping there's others that are going to start to widen their view a little bit, um, in this time of merger and acquisition, and say, you know what you know, maybe I can bring something to the table um, that's unique that I could bring directly to the company. Like I'll give you one other, um, you know, interesting thought about this, Jeff, you know, just a thought that I've had, you know, a lot of agents I talk to that get stuck in this dilemma of the independent versus the, um, you know, employee role. What's ironic to me is a lot of times they'll realize they could actually make more money and be more successful playing more of a direct role in the company. Right. But they're, what really comes down to is they're scared of the work. They're scared of the commitment. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but if I'm a, if I'm part of the team, I'm going to have to go to work, <laughs> you know, sure. and it's like, yeah. And guess what? If you want to be successful as an independent, you got to go to work as well. So, right. you know, I think it's a lot of times it's that idea of like, they don't want to put that commitment down. And again, like you said, everybody's unique, right? Like maybe their, their version of success, maybe it's a little different than, than somebody else's. And I totally respect that. But I think, you know, those who are looking to be daily engaged, I think it's good for them to kind of open up a little bit and, and see that. So um, yeah. last question, last question I have for you on this, Jeff, is um, talk to those who are the independent agents that are looking at EPSG or maybe haven't even heard of EPSG. <clears throat> Why should they consider it as an independent agent coming on board? Tell us a little bit more about the EPSG, um, you know, value proposition to them. Um, and then maybe follow that up with some contact information. Where would you send them to learn more about partnering with EPSG? Absolutely. You know, one of the things as I'm talking to independent agents and even some of these sub ISOs out there with other relationships, uh, what's standing out to me of why I say EPSG is, you know, some people say, hey, you know, already know the industry. Here's the forms, go fill it out, go do your thing. There's no like in the, the direct processor role where you may have a sales support. You've got a partner that's actually going to help walk you through some things. I mentioned it earlier, EPSG's motto is we're here for our partners. And, and so to have the support, right, to be able to to go and sign deals, find new integration pathways. You don't have to do it alone. Um, and that's what really impresses me. So we built tools, design tools for the agent to make them more successful. We have a vested interest in making sure that our partners are successful. We want to give the latest, greatest tools right to them, right? That's just part of when you come on board. This, these are the things that you get. And it's been pretty mind blowing over the last three weeks or so, the stories I hear and I just like, I scratch my head going, why wouldn't someone put these tools in front of you to, to grow your book, to grow your business? Um, so I think first and foremost, and I keep saying it, but 
partner first, right? EPSG, the partner comes first. The merchant accounts are a byproduct of how well we do our job. Um, so we want to remove obstacles to help you grow your book of business um, and, and do it in a way that's completely transparent. You have the ability to look at everything that your, your organization is doing right at your fingertips and you have immediate access. And uh, from the feedback I'm getting out there talking to multiple individuals across the country, in a lot of places it doesn't exist. They're on their own, kind of that lone wolf mentality. Mm-hmm. Now you have support like you may in a W-2 role and giving you the tools and the technology that is just, uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. Love it. So tell us where they should go to learn more is their website or phone number, email, whatever, wherever you'd like to provide. Yeah, so you can definitely go. You, you can obviously give me a call. Um, I'll also give my personal email address, but um, you can go to join us at goepsg.com. So you can go in there, fill out that form. We're going to give you a call, talk to you more about the opportunity at EPSG. Um, you can also email me at jeff.underwood at goepsg.com, and as well as my phone number, um, 209. 209- 814-6660. Be mindful. I'm just throwing this phone number out there. I might get a lot of phone calls. Yeah, I was so, about uh, to say. I, I guess I will uh, I'll too. return your calls within 24 hours, I promise. Awesome. <laughs> and give us that phone number one more time, if you would, Jeff, yep. for those that are driving. It's area code 209-814-6660. Awesome. Awesome. Jeff, and you can always find me on LinkedIn too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's actually how I found Jeff. So good stuff. Yeah. I was well connected on LinkedIn. It's definitely the place for payment. So uh, Jeff, such great information today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share it. It was a unique conversation and it's one that I think needed to be had on the podcast with our audience. And I know a lot of people are going to get value in it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks, thank Jeff. you. I'm very grateful to you and Patty for having me as a guest. So, you know, James, in an industry like merchant services where companies co- and come and go, longevity counts for a lot, you know, and that's why I thought it'd be really important to, you know, point out today that NMI, sponsor of our podcast, has been in business for 20 years, you know, providing a payments platform that's not only processor agnostic, but is set up in such a way as to not ever be in a competitive position vis-a-vis its agents and and ISOs. You know, there are merchant services enablers, is what I think of it as, you know, positioned to help other businesses succeed in the field. And, you know, one one way they are an enabler that I think is particularly noteworthy is that they bring all these value adds to the market, you know, that can be private labeled by us as an agent and that really respond to the business needs of merchants, you know, without the ISO or the agent having to get wrapped up in the development piece, you know. Um, They were easily integrated with uh, payment processing and they can sell, sell it on their own. You know, the one that really jumps out at me, and I think we've spoken about in the past, is the automatic card updates. You know, automatic payments has become a real important functionality in recent years. You know, and when you have an enabler like NMI that can not only do these automatic card updates, but manage all the PCI compliance and all the headaches that that go with it. um, You know, it's really important. So Yeah, I agree. Good stuff, Pat. Yeah, so if you haven't already, go to ccsalespro.com slash NMI. That's Nancy Mary Indigo. Schedule a demonstration of how an NMI can help you grow more profitable and stick to your relationships. 
This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, I really enjoyed our conversation with Jeff. And um, I know from being in the various Facebook groups that uh, I'm sure I will get uh, quite a few negative <laughs> reactions oh, sure. uh, to that one um, because I continue to emphasize the W-2 role in the industry, much to the frustration of the 1099 agents that have decided that they are the sum of all knowledge and that nothing right. else could possibly be correct. Right. Um, and so um, I just wanted to talk for a minute to those who – um, or maybe looking, you know, thinking about that and they're like, James, I'm not exactly sure what you meant. So I want to just kind of dive in and give some tips about number one, should you get more involved with your processing company? And number two, how should you get more involved if you mm -hmm. decide that you want to do that? So let me answer the first question. So should I get more involved in my processing company? Here's the question. If you are a 1099, well, let's say you're building a portfolio. Okay. The question is, do you have more to bring to the table than just your sales ability? Okay. Now, if all you have to bring to the table is sales ability and that's all you want to bring to the table, that is totally fine. Believe Perfectly, me, yeah. Go in no it. way am I trying to say that that's bad. I think that's fantastic. Um, and so that's good. Then the second question is, are you at a stage of your life? Do you, you look at the next, let's say five years, I think five years is a pretty good chunk here to talk about career stuff. Right. When you look at the next five years of your life, do you anticipate being fully engaged consistently in growing your career, increasing your income, growing your business, whatever you want to call it, that's part of your life. Do you anticipate being consistently engaged or do you plan to live three months a year on a boat or you plan to travel the country on your RV or whatever, right. which I know literally both of those things. I know dozens of agents in this industry that do that. Okay. Right, right. So if that's you, that's, you're not a good fit. Okay. For what I'm about to describe. If all you have to bring to the table is sales, you're not a good fit for what I have to provide. But if you look at this and say, you know what, James, I am going to continue to be engaged in the industry on a you know day-to-day -day basis. I'm going to want to take my three, four weeks vacation a year. But you know, generally speaking, I'm going to be working every day on growing my processing business. Um, then, you know, and if you say I have something else I can bring to the table in terms of leadership ability, management skill. Um, a background in finance, IT ability, whatever it is, right? Right, right. Then here's the thing. No matter how much money you make, you need to start by removing this concept from your head that somehow your processing company is okay with paying you twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a month in residual income, but they could never imagine paying you that much as an employee. Mm -hmm. They could care less. It's money. They're trying to get a return on investment. And most of the processing companies today either just got bought, are just about to be sold, or they're trying to build so that they can be sold. Right. Okay. Right. So to them, they just want to get their EBITDA up. Okay. We won't get right. into all the financial stuff today. Okay. But they want to get their earnings up and they want to increase the value of the company for their eventual sale, or they want to increase the value because they just got acquired by a private equity firm and they're looking to, you know, roll that over and make a lot of money off of it. 
And as a result of that, you can bring something to the table that can increase value, not just for your little portion of the book, but there might be things that you've done that are successful that you could bring to the entire organization that in a small way could make a huge impact because you might have one, you know, you might say, well, I'm only, I can only impact this one small piece. Well, right. But you know, you figured out how to make your accounts slightly more profitable or have a slightly higher retention rate. Well, on your 300, 400 accounts, that's nice, right? On the company's 50,000 accounts, that becomes very valuable. Yes. Right? Right. Right. So what do you do if you realize that's me and I might want to play more of an involved role in my processing company? And the answer to that is surprisingly simple. Okay. Odds are, if you are successful already, well, step one is become successful at what you're doing. Right. Right. I, I should, shouldn't even have to say that, but I, I will just to clarify. Right. So if you've made three sales for your processing company and you're thinking about reaching out to the president of the company to offer your expertise, um, just forget about it. Early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, go make 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 sales, you know, get whatever your level of success. But I, again, I'm assuming you've already reached some level of success here. So assuming that you've already proven yourself, odds are you probably have a connection already to one of the main decision makers at the company, the VP of sales, the CEO, the president, the chairman of the board, whatever it is, right. you probably have a connection or at least a connection to a connection of this person that you would want to talk to. And it's really quite simple. You reach out to them and say, hey, I've been really successful in the business. I want to do more. I believe in the company. I believe in the brand. I believe in what we're trying to do. And I'd like to be more involved. Can we get together face-to-face and have a conversation about how I might play that role? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all you have to do. There are so many of our listeners that need to have this conversation. And the worst thing that can happen is you can go and you can find out it's not a good fit. Right. And then all you did is you created a stronger relationship with the owner or CEO of the company. Because they know you care. Yes. And that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing. Um, What's really going to happen is they're going to give you a lot of insight. They're going to give you a lot of tips. They've seen this play out with a lot of other people. Um, And, you know, and so that's a good thing. And then the other thing that could happen is they might say, wow, you know what? I'm so glad that, that we had this conversation because right now I really need somebody that can play this particular role. Right. And so if you'll play this role, in addition to your residuals, we'll pay you X amount and we're going to give you this, you know, this carrot of like when we roll the next private equity round or when we sell or when we do this or that or whatever, you're going to get X as well. Right. And all of a sudden you can get a balloon payment down the road. You can get additional income over the next you know, few years. And by being really engaged in the process, you're probably going to make a lot more money because you're having that structure and that accountability that you're working a lot more and you're getting a lot more done. Um, right. And so I really would encourage those of you who have an interest in that. And are willing to put in, willing to abide by the structure and, and accountability, obviously. Yes, which okay. which again is not nearly as overbearing as I think a lot of people understand of people it to think, be. Yeah, that's yeah. like, look, if you're a, if you're building a business successfully, I mean, you're. I mean, I know this industry. We have a disproportionate number of people with what we call residualitis. You know, they make so much money in residual, they just don't work very much. But I mean, for most of you that are building and growing, I mean, you're working 50 hours a week anyway, at least 40. You know, Mm -hmm. most of these cushy corporate jobs where you're coming in from a position of strength, I mean, you're not like applying through career builder here. I mean, you're obviously very successful. They know you're very successful. They know you're coming in because you want to be more successful. If they're going to give you a role to play, it's going to be significant. And they're going to, of course, give you flexibility to do your vacations and have your time off and have your flexibility. Um, but they're also going to give you an opportunity to really make some money. And I think that, with, especially right now with the 
shortage of, of employees and, you know, the, all of these positions that are unfilled. Um, right. I think our industry is really looking for people that are passionate, that are saying, you know what, I do want to play a role. And again, it's, it's one of the things about my job that is a little bit frustrating is that I know so much information about the industry and about individuals and companies that of course I can't share, you know, mm-hmm. um, from the consulting side. Um, but I wish that, you know, just I think about the last month, like I wish that I could somehow give our audience like a tour of here are the people that I've interacted with in the last month who are employees that are making a million dollars a year that are on track to get a $10 million payout in Mm -hmm. a few years that are going to, you know, like this is insane. Like, and these are people who were in most cases, 1099 salespeople that said, you know what, I want to play a more active role in the company. And they jumped in with both feet. In some cases, they even relocated. You know, I mean, they're like all in and they're like, you know what? I want to work with the team to build the company and to replicate the success I've had across the entire organization. Um, And it's paid off handsomely for them. And it's put them in a really, really good position from a career perspective to make even more money moving forward. And so I think it's something that should be explored again. Is it the right Right. fit for everybody? Of course not. Um, But I think there's a lot of agents out there that have a strong background in these areas that really have never even considered being more involved with their ISO. And I think it's worth reaching out and having a conversation. Yeah. I mean, you can at least consider it, you know, maybe it won't work out, but why it's sort of like, uh, you know, passing up a potentially really big paycheck. Right. Why not have the conversation? And again, worst case scenario, you're going to have a deeper, better relationship, a more loyal relationship with the decision maker at the company that's paying you your residuals, which is not a bad idea. Yeah. Good stuff, James. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. You know, folks, a new law just took effect in Texas that makes it clear that payment processing services are not subject to state and local taxes. Now, I have to admit, when I first learned of this new law, I was scratching my head. I mean, after all, the state already collects taxes, sales taxes um, from consumers on their purchases, and payment processors pay taxes on the income earned processing payments, so what gives? Well, it turns out that Texas has a pretty broad reach when it comes to sales tax collection. The state collects 6.25% on sales of data processing services, like word processing, data entry, things like that. Mm. Um, And local piggyback tax, sales tax, can add up to another 2% to the tab. Pretty Mm. high. For you people like you and I who are in Maryland and Pennsylvania with fairly low tax rates. Right, right. 8% is up there. Yeah. Is up there, right. Well, you know, traditionally merchant credit and debit card processing have been excluded from the definition of data processing. But recently, the state controller had begun questioning this exclusion, suggesting that card processing services should carry sales tax, according to sponsors of this law. And, and I'm sorry, just let me cut in here for one second. When you sure. say that, you're saying, you're talking about sales tax on what? On the fees that the merchant is paying? On the, yeah, on the, on the processing fees. Got it. So, so in other words as a, the credit card processing company would be a service provider. Right. And they would need to add a tax. Tax. As uh, onto the fees that they're charging the merchant for processing services. Yes. 
Okay. Can you imagine right, the headaches it. that would make for, you know. That would be a mess. That would be a mess, you know. Yes. Okay. Because um, nobody you know, does that right now. There's no nobody. State. Yeah, exactly. And that was the thing. Right. When I first saw this, I, I actually went and I asked a couple of accountants and, and lawyers. It's like, am I reading this wrong? I didn't think anybody did this. And they're like, yeah, this is a one-off, you know. Uh, Texas, you know, maybe they were looking for some new income, you know, whatever right. the reason. Right. But, um, you know, as the sponsors of the bills, you know, noted, it would, you know, if this policy had gone through, businesses in the state would end up paying hundreds of millions of dollars in additional taxes each year. Yeah. And as they insisted, you know, decisions to create a large tax increase on Texas businesses should be made by lawmakers, not the controller. Yeah. Uh, because usually tax issues are a legislative thing. Yes. So the new law, which took effect on October 1st, codifies that taxable data processing services do not include credit and debit card processing. Hmm. And it lays out in pretty pretty deep detail what's included in the exclusion, right. which basically spans the entire payment processing lifecycle and associated players. You know, capturing, processing, and settling transactions, acquires ISOs and agents, card networks, banks, and just for good measure, they also threw in money transmitting services are excluded. Okay. Um, you know, and like we said, I mean, you're the, the, the consumer's already paying sales tax on the purchase. The right. Processors and their partners are already paying income tax on that. Right. So, you know, um, like I said, that this is a situation that was pretty unique to Texas. Um, they don't, there's, you know, doesn't seem to be any other state where this is going on. But um, imagine the hassles of billing for and collecting taxes on every credit card transaction that's processed in the state. I mean, it would have been a nightmare. So, yeah. um, you know, it was a preemptive strike. Yeah. But it was a very helpful preemptive strike, well, especially good. for, you know, for people in our business. Yeah, absolutely good. Yeah, I think that's great. Because that would put a lot, of, uh, a lot of downward pressure on margins and things of that nature if we had to start oh, yeah, charging taxes sure. on Right. And, so good, and not so. only not only on margins, but imagine you already have these merchants, you know, squawking about the cost of processing. Right. Had a sales tax on top of that. Right. And, yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, and especially in Texas, you had a, you know, eight and a half percent tax on a two thousand dollar credit card processing bill. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot yeah. of money. So, yeah. well, good stuff. I uh, Hopefully we won't hear any more updates on this. It's a, it's a no. done deal, but it sounds like it's a dodged bullet. And so I appreciate you giving us the update. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.